G'day, friends of the show. Thanks for tuning in. If at any moment you're smiling to yourself, listening to this episode, going, man, what a great episode, then feel free to head over to ideasdigest.org. You can sign up and become a super friend of the show. At the end of this episode, I had an extended conversation with Dr. Debunk the Funk. We dive a little bit deeper into the world of conspiracy, how susceptible are just regular Joe Blows like you and me to falling prey to conspiracy theories. Ideasdigest.org, sign up, support the show. If you listen to this episode and go, this episode is so horrible, I'm so triggered right now, then also fantastic. You can also head over to ideasdigest.org and help make the show better by signing up at ideasdigest.org. Enjoy the episode. I'm right and you're wrong. Once you start labeling people, categorizing of humans and ideas, you have desensitized yourself to the humanity of that other human being, to who they really are. And in the marketplace of ideas, these things are complicated, man. We all need to engage with a variety of viewpoints. A genuine multicultural connection with another. I mean, sometimes you don't need to agree or disagree. You just need to sit with it and digest. G'day and welcome back to another episode of Ideas Digest, the podcast where we explore the challenging ideas that divide us in order to open our minds. My name's Conrad. We are live on Instagram at the moment as we record this. So if you're tuning in live, welcome. If you're tuning in podcast land, also welcome. A few weeks ago, we did an episode called COVID Vaccines and the Truth. The amount of times that truth bomb has been dropped around COVID vaccines with completely different information has confused me endlessly for the last two years, two and a half years. And in that episode, I explored with Matt and I this book called The Real Anthony Fauci. And the subtext, the subtitle of that book is Big Pharma's Global War on Democracy and Humanity. Oh my goodness, that is the biggest clickbait title I've ever seen. And it got me hooked. So if you haven't heard that episode and you haven't, you know, I'm familiar with the book, then you can go back, listen to that. But the TLDR, the too long, I didn't read or listen to the book was, this is what I kind of got out of it. I was trying to understand. This book, I think, is like a ground zero for people who are anti-vax or don't think COVID's a thing or whatever. So I was like, how do I understand this worldview? Can it suck me in? And guess what? It really, it sucks me in. Um, so the, 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 the takeaways I got might not be what you got was Anthony Fauci, if you haven't heard of, heard of him, he's the director of the USA Public Health Whatever. And he's essentially, according to this book, the literal devil. Um, Big Pharma have corrupted the entire drug approval process for profits, compromising all the regulatory bodies along the way. COVID may have been a planned event. I don't know. That's, I think, what is insinuated. Vaccines are potentially harmful along with a lot of other stuff. You get the idea. Um, It's quite some heavy heavy accusations thrown in that book. A lot of things above my pay grade. Uh, but we were just interested in the story element of it. What's the story being told here? How compelling is it? And boy, it, it was compelling. So go back, listen to that episode. That's a bit of homework. So as I went through that book, I was like, man, I'm out of my depth in so many ways. I'm going to see if I can get someone in who's read this book and maybe has a degree and can give me their perspective on it. So I want to introduce new friend of the show. I know him from YouTube as Mr. Debunk the Funk, Dr. Wilson. Welcome to the Ideas Digest podcast. Hey, Conrad. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. Now, we've just met, you know, I've seen you on YouTube, reached out, got you on the live, and uh, it's almost as if we're speed dating, right? <laughs> so I I want to... Did you see the, my little speed dating profile I made for you on Instagram? 
I I saw your story. Yeah. <laughs> well, I made like it was meant to like replicate Tinder, and I made up some facts, and it was like, oh, don't miss the debunk the funk, and I made up your age. Uh, was oh, I correct okay. in my age guess? I think. What did you guess? Uh maybe like thirty-five or thirty-six. Uh, no, I'm twenty-nine. Oh, quite a few years. Quite. A, yeah. It's the beard. It's the beard. I can't grow a beard, so I'm like, anyone who can grow a beard's got to be over 35. <laughs> so it, it's almost like we're speed dating. So I'm going to ask you some kind of intro, get to know you, kind of speed daty type of questions. And the basic start off is, Dr. Wilson, who are you and what do you do? So, um, man, we're going to, let's see if there's a love connection here. Um, so <laughs> my name's Dan. I'm a pretty normal scientist. Uh, I got my mm-hmm. PhD in molecular biology from Carnegie Mellon University and went on to get a normal job in the biotech industry. Um, but throughout my entire career in science, I've always been really interested in science communication. And before I started my path uh, on science, I was actually hooked on conspiracy theories. Um, so this whole, you know, anti-vaccine movement, I was really familiar with them before COVID. And I had always kind of wanted to do something online, communicating the science of why these people are wrong. Um, (laughs) And so that's eventually what I started doing in, um, in, I I started my channel officially in January of 2020. Um, so right when COVID was really starting, <laughs> which was a complete coincidence. Good timing. I, I, it, Very good timing. It ended up being an interesting timing. Yeah. Um, but I started off just, you know, covering the anti-vaxxers that I was familiar with, having fun doing it. It was a hobby for me, you know, um, a fun mm-hmm. outlet for, the science communication that I wanted to do. Um, and then COVID started ramping up and I started making more videos about COVID. The channel got much bigger than I expected. Uh, you know, it's still relatively small as term as far as channels go, but, um, I'm having a lot of fun doing it. So that's just a quick intro as to like, you know, my YouTube stuff and how I got into it. As we're dating, I'm feeling some chemistry here, Dan. I'm, I'm really vibing our, <laughs> our meeting here. Tell me, what are your best characteristics? My, <laughs> um, I think people who know me would probably say I'm super patient. Um, it's hard to tick me off. It's hard to, you know, get me to yell at someone. I'm hearing an accent, so I'm guessing you're in America <laughs> somewhere. I'm going to go just because I know your time zone, east coast somewhere, middle, middle upper east somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's right. I'm on the upper east coast, Which, uh, Pennsylvania. Off to a great start. Now, I know a little bit about you. We had a bit of a speed dating round. I know your background, but I'm going to be honest uh, with you, Dan. Mm-hmm. I have been judging you this entire time, and I have some judgments that I would like to confess to you about you now that I know who you are, what you do. And if you could be so kind as to correct me with a simple yes or no, if you can, about my judgments that I'm just going to throw at you. Lay it on me. All right. (laughs) My first one, you're a scientist. We have a few Christian friends of the show, a few atheist friends of the show. I reckon you're an atheist. Uh, 
Not, not really. I won't. No. I wouldn't identify as an atheist. No. no. Not really. Okay. First one. First one gone, everybody. Next one. Science. This one might be a bit harsh, but you love science. Dan, you must be a nerd. Bit of a nerd. Yeah. I have a lot of fantasy books <laughs> on the shelf behind me. I don't think... Oh, do you really? Is that Game of Thrones back there? I've got Game of Thrones. I've got Lord of the Rings and a bunch of other series that I've read up there. Okay, so we nailed that one, everybody. Okay, <laughs> so you're de- this one's an obvious one. I don't even know why I've got it. You, uh, de- you're debunking anti-vaxxers on YouTube. You've got to be like a hard pro-vaxxer out there with the placards pro-vaccine movement. Um, Sure, yeah. I I advocate <laughs> for people vaccinating themselves and their kids. Okay. Yeah, yeah. All right, now this is where it links. You're American. I kind of know how your politics works a little bit. We got to label, we got to pigeonhole you. If you're pro vax, you've got to be a hard Democrat. I wouldn't say I'm a hard Democrat, but. Uh, a soft Democrat. Sure, yeah. <laughs> An unwilling Democrat. Okay. I personally just, sorry, I just personally don't like American politics, but yeah. That, anyway, we can, well, go, we can the, move on. You're in the right country for it then. <laughs> you, Dan, you must, you must personally hate anti vaxxers, hate their guts. Uh, so it depends. Um, I don't hate people who are fooled by anti-vaxxers. I, so if, if an anti-vaxxer is spreading a bunch of disinformation, having a bunch of fake experts on their platform, and someone watches them and they get convinced, like, oh, maybe vaccines are dangerous, I don't hate that person. Um, I'm sympathetic towards them. But the person who is knowingly spreading disinformation and profiting off of people's suffering, I have a lot less sympathy for them. No sympathy for mis- for willing misinformation spreaders. Last mm-hmm. one. Uh, you mentioned something about biotech, nano, I don't some kind of tech industry. All that sounds like to me, Dan, is you're on the payroll of Big Pharma, so of course you would be pro-vaccine. Sure, yeah. I mean... So I work, I work for a, um, biotech company. Um, that's, that's my day job. Um, we have a lot of different projects that I work on, but you know, (laughs) I would say that if the data showed that whatever project we're working on is not good, then I would follow the data and not you know, blindly follow a company. Um, you know, I went to school for biology. I did my PhD in biology. And so I'm working in the field and I don't think that that puts me on any sort of, you know, bias and just all, um, being totally transparent. My job, my day job has absolutely nothing to do with my channel. Um, it's completely independent. I do it all on my own time. So your day job, is not Pfizer. No, I do not work for Pfizer. No. <laughs> As I was doing this research on this book, well, research, me, I don't do research. We know that. I just read things and look at algorithms that YouTube just pumps to me. That's that's my research, algorithmic research. Uh, I When I was reading this book, I was like, all right, what are people saying about it? So I was YouTubing. That's how I came across your videos. Mm-hmm. You also have read that same book. Now, you're a scientist spending a lot of time communicating this stuff. As I was reading it, I'm flicking through and 
it's all above my pay grade. Citations here, links to this, paper this, uh, this study was flawed because of this sample, whatever. All beyond me. Now, you, you kind of have something that I suppose I don't have. Pete Lehman, like me, I don't have. It might be like an idea, a perspective. I don't know what it is. What do you think that might be? Because I want you to pitch it to me. Like, sell me an idea that can make me more like you. If I could accept something, what might that be? Pretend I'm in a car yard, kicking some tires, trying to find a new idea to really help me through this misinformation world. Sell me something. Hmm. Well, I think I'd, I guess I'd try to sell you on the idea of the scientific community as a thing. So imagine a international community of scientists, people who have studied for years and years and years uh, similar topics, and they're all super hyper-competitive nerds who are really trying to find the truth, and they're going to be really brutal towards each other if they think that they're not being honest about the truth right that's essentially what the scientific community is and that because you have a lot of scientists working in groups all around the world all trying to do research to answer basic questions find things that teach us about the world or lead toward medicine medications in some way that make life better and it's it's a competition right uh people are trying to um, find that next step that is going to make them look really good uh, and do all those things I just said. Uh, but there are others who are constantly checking their work, saying, saying, oh, well, you didn't do this experiment, so this sh you can't really say this. You have to go back and do this experiment and then go back and do this experiment and this and that. And... Uh, that's constant in the scientific community. Um, the peer review process is super, super tough. It's not perfect, but it's super tough. Um, I've gone through it. Mm -hmm. And so that's what you have behind things like COVID vaccines. That's what you have behind things like the HIV AIDS medications that, um, are talked a lot about in that book. Uh, and to have someone like Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who is just citing, you know, a lot of tabloid articles, citing a lot of the things that he's written, um, citing a lot of his friends, in an attempt to try and dismantle all of that, um, mm. it's kind of ridiculous, uh, to be frank. Um, so I know that wasn't really an elevator pitch, but that's kind of the start of what I would try to try to say to you. Mm -hmm. you you're pitching to me in essence trust the nerds that's that's what it sounds like you're saying there's this rigorous process with these guys that we've all been in school with that were way smarter than me i'll be honest they did their homework properly they got higher grades than me and they were rigorous and you're saying that if you work in this field the scientific field doing a, writing papers there's complex processes peer review processes it's really tough other people are incentivized to cross-check people's work, and you're trying to pitch me on trusting this process 
and the people that make it up. Does that sound about right? Almost. Yeah. Yes. I'd say yes and yes and no. Um, Yes, because I think ultimately you can trust the nerds. You can trust the scientific community to be self-correcting and, you know, put out the right information and good products. But you don't have to just trust them. You can read their work for yourself um, or, you know, listen to other communicators who are communicating their work for them because scientists aren't always the best communicators. I know it's tough to read the papers that they write. Um, I I experienced Mm -hmm. that myself when I was writing uh, my thesis and my paper. Um, You know, I wrote my abstract, which had to be like, a limit of 300 words and it had to pack so much information in there. Once I was done, I read it and I'm like, ah, damn it, man. You know, only a few hundred people in the world even know what these terms mean. And that was sad to me. I'm like, (laughs) uh, I'm like the normal person can't pick up my paper and read it, but my hands were tied, you know? So these papers are tough Mm -hmm. to read. I get that. Um, Mm -hmm. So, so it takes work if you're going to really delve into the science and understand the details and not everyone has Mm -hmm. the time or, you know, the desire to put in that work. So if you don't, I think you can trust the experts. You can rest easy trusting the experts, but you don't have to, if you really want to delve into it, you can get into the details and learn the basics yourself. So you're recognizing how hard this process of understanding the complex science and papers that are written, because I suppose that was my experience reading this book and any expert opinion on COVID when it comes out to someone like me and probably many friends of the show. I, you know, I've, I've got two degrees. I've been to university. I know what like a peer reviewed paper is. I can, you know, I can do enough to go, okay, does he have at least citations or is he like literally linking nothing and oh this is just someone's opinion but with the world of COVID Mm -hmm. people like me I think we're educated enough to know to look for the basics like citations and things like that but now we're in this world where you're making videos debunking like Dr. Peter McCullough Robert Malone Robert Malone I was gonna say Freddie Prince Jr. (laughs) okay Robert F. Kennedy Jr. I think he's a lawyer and all of a sudden my basic skills of being able to read it myself, do the research yourself. That's what people say to me all the time. And like, I guess you're saying I can go read that paper, but I guess what I learned firsthand is I understand nothing. When Robert F. Kennedy is um, putting all those citations in the book and saying the reason why vaccines are passing all these things because they haven't done these types of trials before, which aren't allowed to be done for whatever reason. Uh, It sounds hard, complicated and boring to me. So it must be right. I don't know. And so how does, how do you take someone like me then into this world? Is it, does it end at this level of, I suppose what you're saying, someone like me ultimately has to do as much little research as I can. Who should I trust? And then maybe I might just have to trust somebody Mm -hmm. and why not be the experts is what you're saying. Why not this group of people who dedicate their lives to researching the, these sorts of things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I totally get what you're saying with how it was difficult reading that book, because even for me debunking it, it was 
difficult, but not because I couldn't understand it. It was because he just throws so much stuff rapid fire page after page mm-hmm. throughout the book that it's just like, you know, I'd finish reading a chapter and I'd sit down, look at my notes and I'd say like, oh my God, there's so much stuff. Like, am I going to make a two hour video? How am I going to pare this down? <laughs> um, there's just, yeah. and with, you know, in, in um, the world of skepticism, we call that gish galloping where you just throw tons of stuff at the audience in an attempt to like dazzle them and just convince them through sheer amount of content that you're saying that you're right. And that's Mm -hmm. definitely a tactic that Robert is doing uh, in that book. You touched on another thing where with COVID, there are a lot of experts, people with degrees who are saying things that are counter to what, you know, you might be hearing from the NIH or, or the NIAID. Um, and I think that's made it an especially difficult situation with COVID. Um, but if you start digging a little bit into the claims that these people make, um, it doesn't take long to see that what they're saying actually falls apart. Um, and we can go into specific examples of that. Uh, if you want, but with people like Peter McCullough, Robert Malone, everybody um, who, everybody like them, uh, they it, they just fall apart really quickly when you start actually reading the literature that has been put out by the scientific community and um, understanding some of the basics that um, have been fundamentally established over, over decades. So let's say I've read the book mm-hmm. and I have read the book, mm-hmm. so we're off to a great start. It's a compelling book, I'll be honest. He, like you're saying, he drops a lot of stuff. It seems like some legit data. He's got some experience in some other areas that, that lend some credibility to who this guy is. If, I, if I'm that person that's, that's going, Dan, mate, listen, the pharmaceutical industry in America is wrecked. I watched that TV show, Dope Sick, and... The opium epidemic, the mm-hmm. opium crisis was all because money infiltrated the regulatory bodies and it's like led to the most drug overdose and deaths in human history mm-hmm. and it's not really covered in the news and Big Pharma got away with it and Purdue are freaking rich and it's just that all over again. And in this book, I'm reading a similar story. Here's a story of uh, money influencing the regulatory process. It seems pretty familiar. If that's legit, why not this I want you to deconvert me. I'm in the camp right now, hypothetically, where I'm like, you know what? This sounds pretty good. Trust no one. These experts can't be trusted. It's all a hoax. Can you deconvert me and maybe point to some tactics that might be used to, to chip away at this worldview I have right now, which might be trust no one. Money's ruined everything. The nerds have been corrupted by money <laughs> and career ambitions. I'll just trust my own intuition. Sure. Take me from here to maybe closer to you. Sure. Um, so I would start by agreeing with you that big pharma is shady as hell. Um, we have mm-hmm. real examples of the opioid epidemic in America where there, those are clear examples of corruption. <clears throat> and, you know, those, those are real stories that could help you that can make you lose trust. But let's zoom out a little bit and say, okay, I have this example of big pharma being shady. 
how often do they do things like that? And you, you zoom out and you start weighing all of the good that has come out of this industry versus the corruption. And you see that there's a good amount in both, both camps. So then you move forward and say, okay, am I going to just throw everything out? Because I've heard these really compelling and true stories of big pharma corruption. You know, am I going to say that insulin is now poison and corrupt, even though it is of course, price gouged in America by companies. Um, am I going to say that that's dangerous? No, because then you'd be condemning millions of people with diabetes to, to death, to horrible deaths. Um, right. So big pharma does produce essential medications that make life better. So how do we, how do we know when a situation might be corrupt or when a situation might be something that we need in the world? Um, and the only way to really do that is to take it case by case, right? So if we go look at COVID vaccines and we start digging into it, looking into all the evidence, all the data, we have now a situation where it's not just big pharma in the U.S. that's involved. We have academic institutions. We have <clears throat> regulatory agencies from different countries. We have um, other governments involved. We have scientists from all over the world working on this, looking at the data, determining how safe is it, how effective is it, how are they working, and the consensus across the vast majority of all of those groups, all of those scientists, is that they are safe and effective. So why is that? It's because that's what the data say. When you go look at the hard data, that's what you see over and over again, and uh, you know, I can talk through the details of that and any specific claims, but <clears throat> the take home is, you know, you really have to look at it um, case by case with when it comes to these kinds of things. Um, yes, there are compelling stories of corruption, and that's why I say, you know, you don't have to trust Big Pharma because you can check them on on their claims. Um, and I'd also add uh, a big part of, you know, the process of bringing a drug to market, uh, are academic scientists. Academic scientists are a big part of it. You know, they, they help review data. Um, pharmaceutical companies put out papers that are reviewed by the scientific community. Um, and academic scientists, you know, they have big egos. Typically <laughs> there are total, there are a lot of cu cultural problems in scientific communities for sure, just as there are in any community, but, uh, it's, it's pretty tough to make the argument that academic scientists are easily corrupted because they don't make much money, <laughs> at least not, not easily. Um, so for example, me, uh, as a graduate student uh, earning my PhD, I was making um, not much more than a bare minimum living wage. Um, and that's not an hourly rate. I can't increase that. That's just how much you make. End of story. Even though a lot of graduate students work like 10 hour days and they work weekends and some work holidays, doesn't matter. You're in the same amount. If you, 
if you choose to continue in academia, you do maybe two or three postdocs, which is where you go to another lab and you work for like three to five years on another project, earning more experience, getting more papers. Um, that doesn't pay great either. Um, it's, it's not gonna, it's not gonna even really be close to justifying having gone to school for about 10 years at that point. Um, and that, and again, that's a year, that's a yearly fixed rate. Uh, it's a really tough, tough field to be in. And you really have to love it. You have to love the work. You have to be invested in science for the sake of science. I think that perspective helps give a little bit more insight as to what the average scientist um, goes through to get to where they are. Um, it, it's not, it's not, it's not a situation where they just make millions of dollars and get rich lying. Um, You're saying there's, there's not enough money floating around in the system that can easily be accessed to change someone's mind or opinion. And it sounds like your main case is that it's hard for us to know exactly when our systems have failed, like they did with the opium epidemic and big pharma doing dodgy things to sell a crap ton of product that caused a lot of harm. And if we're to take COVID specifically, you would then be saying this is big. This is, if we take it case by case, this case is bigger than just America alone. We have even more scientific bodies that have all done their own independent research that have cross-checked it. So in this instance, you would confidently say, if I'm to cite this example of the um, oxy and the opium epidemic and like someone in the live chat just put through how the nutrition industry shifted the blame from sugar causing the harm to fat causing the harm oh, yeah. mm -hmm. how our public perceptions in history have kind of been shifted by profit motive and money you'd, you'd you're still saying okay we have to just look at it case by case and if in this book we're talking about anthony fauci and we're talking about covid you're pretty confident in saying this is a different case because of just the global rigor that's involved in producing this vaccine specifically and dealing with COVID specifically. I think on the surface, yes. If you're looking at just the question of can we trust, I think, yes, it's very different. People like me and maybe friends of the show, I, I can't, well, at least from my perspective, I can't really come with you on the journey of looking at the data without going through that process that you just said of becoming an undergraduate, working your ass off, getting paid not much money, because I suppose I have to somehow just trust. So I suppose you could give a good insight into how someone like me who can't read these scientific papers, what's going to pull me in? to believing someone like what, what are some of like tactics that might be used that might get someone like me, who's educated, who's got a few degrees, who, who, you know, went to university, but I can still be, uh, I suppose, pulled into certain stories that may not be true. What are some tactics that are used that suck mm -hmm. me in? There are a few tactics that most anti-vaxxers and conspiracy theorists in general will use to sway their audience. Um, they include things like uh, cherry picking. So they'll cherry pick specific mm -hmm. pieces of data or papers that 
either don't represent the literature as a whole or are completely out of context Mm -hmm. and prop those up. They'll prop up fake Mm -hmm. experts. So um, in the example of COVID vaccines and Robert Malone, for example, you know, he claims to be inventor of mRNA technology. Uh, Totally not true. Uh, I don't think he deserves that, deserves credit for that title at all. Um, But he Mm -hmm. still makes that claim and speaks on these topics that he hasn't really been actively researching uh, for the past few decades, really. Um, and Okay, so, so those those first two, mm-hmm. cherry-picking and, and propping up face, fake experts, I'm, I'm just going through. Mm-hmm. Cherry-picking, cherry I think, is even hard for me to identify yeah. because I teach economics and I... I kind of get what you're saying as I translate it into the thing I understand. Someone will, you know, quote some job statistic and I'll go, ah, okay, but that number in this context, the context changes everything. And that's like the example of cherry picking, you know, X percent of people uh, have this disease. And then you go, whoa, that's really high. But then you go, ah, but here's the population of this country. And then you go, oh, actually, it's it's quite low. And so that sounds like in a field I'm unfamiliar with, that sounds actually pretty hard for me to identify yeah. because if he drops some statistics and I don't know the context, I'm not going to pick that one up. And then the next one is appealing to, to false experts. This one I've had more luck in because when you're talking about Robert Malone, that's what I found very quickly as well. He said he was the inventor of mRNA. And then upon you know some critiques, people were saying he did something in the pipeline of it becoming the thing it became, but you're saying mm, he probably can't claim he's the inventor of it because it's a long process of lots of different things. Mm-hmm. So that would be a false claim. And when he uses that claim, it makes us want to go, well, th- logically, this is in the vaccine. He invented it and saying he invented it and with air quotes and sa- is saying it's bad. So why wouldn't I trust this expert? Okay. Um, I'm, I'm with you so far. If you want to expand on that or keep going through them as I'm trying to, mm-hmm. I'm just trying to determine whether I'll be able to identify these or not. Yeah. I mean, I, I totally know what you're, I mean, so you teach economics and I know that if I were to read something on economics, I'd have a hard time doing the things that, you know, I'm talking about in your, in your field. Um, it, it's mm. hard. Th- these aren't really meant to be like, easy ways to identify misinformation right away. Um, Mm. They're kind of just like things to look out for and things to try and check whenever encountering these things, because unfortunately there just really isn't an easy, quick way to identify this stuff. And some anti-vaxxers are like super sneaky. They'll seem very reasonable, but you know, I listen to them and I, I, I understand kind of the literature and the material they're talking about. And I think, oh, wow, this person is totally taking this out of context. But the average person just, it's not going to be easy to recognize that. And and no. same for me, if I no. listen to an economics speaker, if I listen to a talk of someone who says, I have a PhD in economics and they're saying these things and I'm like, well, I have no knowledge to, I have no knowledge to question them. I guess that's interesting. I'm going to go home and talk to my wife about this. Hey, guess what I learned today? And I might have no, I might have no idea that it's wrong. Um, it's tough. It's really tough. Um, Mm -hmm. but so there any others that we can, what are some other ones to see if you can find? Um, 
the only other one that I was going to mention real quickly is oftentimes um, in anti-vaccine talking points and conspiracy theorists presentations, another tactic they'll have is having this unrealistic expectation of, of science um, for, cause for COVID vaccines, for example, um, this whole, idea that you can still get COVID even though you're vaccinated and how that is something that is constantly said by a lot of anti-vaxxers. That is an example of having an unrealistic expectation for science because essentially what they're saying is if I'm vaccinated, I shouldn't get COVID, right? They're hundred percent effective, right? No, that, that science is not perfect medicine is not perfect. Nothing is 100%. So when people start using that talking point and going off from there, that's kind of a red flag of, okay, this person is thinking that science needs to be perfect. They're having an unrealistic expectation of it. And that's just not the case. We, myself included, might not fully understand the scientific process because I think the argument, and I think this is what I'll start putting to you. I'll I'll introduce you to three friends that I might have. They might be me, myself. We don't know. And so the the obvious one you've been talking about is the anti-vaxxer. The anti-vaxxer is probably going to say something along those lines, being like, listen, science has been wrong before. They're going to use the example of where Big Pharma has been corrupted, where the government has failed you as a protective mechanism for the people. Mm -hmm. And they can point to probably countless stuff in history being science is wrong. The earth, everyone used to think it was flat and it's round and science was wrong on that. Uh, We used to think smoking was good for you. So why the hell, Dan, should I trust you now? So I think that my usual thoughts to something like that is, you know, if you're not going to go with the best thing that science has to offer right now, then why go with something else? You know, um, are you just going to go with nothing or so, Mm -hmm. you know, if you have, if you have choices in, in a certain situation of ABC and science is telling you, uh, all lines of evidence are pointing to option B being the best choice then what, what's the reason for going for something else or picking nothing mm-hmm. if, you, if you have to make a choice? Um, so I, I, Well, I could, I could give a, a reason that might be there. So it sounds like you're saying science isn't perfect, and you understand that, you work in the field, but you're kind of saying, listen, we are on this trajectory, this scientific trajectory where it's like, we've learnt all of that. Now we know smoking is not bad for you. So I'm going to make this decision and we're going to keep working this stuff out. So I'm going to go with the best understanding we have at the time. And you're saying, why would you go with anything else? And I think friends of the show might be thinking, well, I'm going to go with my own intuition because I know myself. I trust Mm. myself. I know my own experiences and I know my own anecdote. What's your response to someone like that that says, I'm just going to trust myself because I've been let down by the system. Maybe they've had a bad experience in a hospital with mainstream medicine or something like that. I'm just going to trust my own intuition and myself. Why not do that? I would say, how often is your intuition wrong? Um, how accurate is your intuition? So 
if you if you want to go with intuition every every time instead of picking what the science is saying is the best option right now then i think you're going to be wrong a lot uh, especially if your intuition is leading you to something along the lines of not taking a vaccine, for example. How can I explain this? Um, maybe an easier way to say it is that human senses, human intuition, human bias, is, it's, it's deeply flawed. And science is a way to kind of eliminate all of those things, to control for all of those things, and see what happens when someone's not biased, someone's not um, being influenced by things that can muddy the results objectively what is true um and you know personal experiences can be very very misleading um so with covid we've seen that a lot you've heard i'm sure you've heard joe rogan and lots of other people say i had covid and i took ivermectin and i was fine or i had covid and i was fine in a few days uh, you hear those stories but Unfortunately, you don't get to hear the stories of the people who can't speak anymore, the people who lost their lives. And that's millions of people at this point. Um, so intuition is just, it's going to be biased. It's not necessarily going to give you an accurate view of what the right choice is. And in a situation where it could be life or death, where getting the vaccine could make the difference between you spending a few nights in the hospital or even even dying or suffering from long-term debilitating conditions and and staying healthy you know you you really want to make the right choice and i think that going with what objective data has to say is going to be the best option every time that sounds like if i'm honest a pretty hard sell mm. Because what it sounds like you're telling me to do is take a step back from what I think is right, what I've experienced, my personal experience knowing myself. And you're saying, in, in, in one way, it sounds like you're saying, Conrad, I know you might have this experience and it may work for you at the moment, but we are more biased than we think. We are more unreliable than we think. And if and if I can step back from my own experience and include, I suppose, what you're saying when you're saying the scientific process and follow the data, it sounds like in order for me to do that, I actually have to take a step back from how smart I think I am, how capable I think I am at deciphering this science. Because I think I've heard a lot in the last two years, do your own research. <laughs> and it sounds like in one way you're saying... If you uh, have that expertise, you might be able to do your own research. But if you don't, and even then, individuals are all very biased and we have this process called science that we can use to try and distance ourselves a little bit and get a, use lots of other people and lots of other experiments to make more accurate decisions. Is that that sounds, sounds like what you're telling me. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would expand by saying, you know, I think what you're describing there by taking a step back from 
how smart you think you are and all that stuff. You know, I think if you don't do that, especially in a field where you know that you're not really well-versed, I think it's a little bit selfish to think that, hey, I have my intuition and my intuition is going to be more reliable than thousands of experts who have spent tens of thousands of hours studying these topics, learning from others, and coming up with answers. Um, I think that it you have to kind of... Like, if I were to make a decision on an economic issue, I'd want to talk to you first before I use my intuition to say, like, well, my beliefs say that this should be true, so I'm going to just think that this is the right answer. Um, I think it, I think it's a better... It, it's better to learn from expertise and be willing to change your views based on what data say. I think that's an ex- a more exciting and um, hmm. a more more honest way to look at these kinds of issues. Yeah, I it makes a lot of sense and I, but I also think at the same time it's, it's tough. It is. It's because hard. when I think in reality what I need I have to be self-aware about what I don't know and Dan I'll tell you mate I'm firing opinions from my hip <laughs> left right and center and I have to pause and go oh Conrad you have no expertise in this and sometimes when I've read a little bit of an article or a newspaper on something I'm like no nah, I just read this thing I just listened to one podcast it's three hours long with Joe Rogan <laughs> trust me I know this I've I've done it and it's actually I don't know I don't I don't know if I have that level of self-awareness to know or be aware of what I don't know. Yeah, it, it, it's hard. Because it, it, human bias is, it's strong, right? We have our own, our own biases. And, you know, I, I had to, I, I guess I could tell a little story from, from grad school where, you know, I spent the first two years of my PhD, two or three years, studying this one piece of this one protein that both me and my advisor thought was going to be so important to, to what we were studying. We thought it just had to be doing something super important. And all the experiments I was doing was just like, it's not that important. Like that's what the data was, were, were telling us, but we just were being stubborn about it. We were like, no, it has to be important. We have to keep trying other experiments. There's something we're missing. And at the end of the story, at the end of my PhD, um, when I had wrapped up all my work, the answer was, it's just not that important. And it turned out there was something else that was really related to it. That was the really important thing. But, um, you know, we kind of ran into that bias where we had, we had this idea and we wanted it to be true and we kept trying to make it true, but the data just were not agreeing with us. And so that was, mm. that was kind of a lesson in humility where it's, for me at least, um, where it was like, okay, you know, if something's not working, we have to back off and try other things. And it's a lesson that a lot of scientists, I, I hope, learn. Um, but it's, I, I understand that it's also hard to apply that to, to other fields where, you know, I, I might not know much about a particular 
field, but maybe I have a strong belief. And because I don't know much, that belief becomes more entrenched in me and it's harder to overturn it. And because I'm not an expert, I have to do more work to learn. And am I ever going to do that work? Well, I don't know <laughs> because we're all busy people. Mm. We're all, we all have our own things in life and it's, it's really tough to, uh, you know, digest a ton of information and COVID has been a ton of information. A fire hose. And, and it's almost as if you're talking in your example there about, we always think bias comes with money and, and yes, it's very often it does. It's like where people make their money or where the incentive structures point us. But you're mentioning there about how much effort you put into this one area. You really want it to be true because you spent so much time into it. And that's a pretty hard invisible bias that is hard to see because you're just trying to work hard and make this thing happen. When in the end, you might have to just step back and go, well, it feels like all my time was completely wasted and I just have to trust the process and go, all right, I'll step away from it now that data is pointing me in a different direction. I think that's like a little anecdote that everyone goes through in their lives being like, how far do we go down the path that we thought was the right way? Um, until, you know, reality hits us in the head to point us back the other way. And that change of direction, I think is, I think that's the challenge, whether it comes from science or whether it comes just in, in your daily human life. Um, as I, as I talk to you and you're saying, okay, you would prefer to follow the data, trust the system over your personal gut or intuition, because you go, listen, I think this one has a higher probability. No, it's not perfect. What do you say to that person that that's, that would say the system that you're saying to trust has completely let me down. The system that you're relying on, has led so many people to their deaths, has led so many people just the wrong way, been manipulated by by the powers, you know, greater powers. You know, the church has done it. Different states have done it. Big corporations do it. They say, trust us, trust us, trust us. Oh, wait, smoking kills you. What, what do you say to that person? Because that's a scary thing to give up their autonomy, I suppose, and trust this, this bigger machine. What do you say to that? You know, I would sort of say kind of what I was touching on earlier where you know you don't have to trust them uh, you you can look into it um, you can you know do the work to listen find and listen to experts and I would talk about examples like the tobacco industry and smoking and say well you know scientists knew for a very long time that cigarette smoke and tar uh, was not good, uh, that it was toxic, that it was cancer-causing. Uh, scientists knew for a long time that that was the case. But in that situation of the tobacco industry, the tobacco industry did the kind of the playbook of conspiracy theorists, where they propped up fake experts to, to cherry-pick. You know, they did pay a small number of uh, people with credentials to say things that they wanted them to say. But, and, and that's what the media would, of course, report on, and that's what the public would hear. But behind the scenes, the scientific community, the people uh, who worked in the relevant fields and produced literature in the relevant fields, they were like, well, no, we know that this is bad. 
this is clearly bad. We know we, we have a long history of, um, long medical history of people working in, um, certain jobs that expose them to a lot of tar, uh, certain uh, occupational hazards that have been more associated with lung cancers and uh, things like that. And we know that smoking uh, produces a lot of that same, that same situation. Um, and then it wasn't until a little later on, our tools got a little better and scientists were able to show definitively that smoking actually like leaves a molecular marker specific marker uh, on your DNA that causes cancer. Um, and then w once it was like really undeniable that uh, smoking does cause cancer, then the, then the public, you know, caught up, but scientists, the literature, the answers were there. Um, so, so you're saying that scientists, you're kind of flipping that. You're saying science knew. So we were, someone's using that as an example to say, look, science failed us. But you're kind of saying, no, no, science saved us. It took a while to overcome the, the money factors within the industry, controlling the mm -hmm. messaging and the junk science that they were producing. But you're saying science saved us. What do you say to the critique that is science? Yeah, sure, it's helpful, but it's failing us because of the funding, how it's tied to funding. Because scientists might say, you know, some natural health remedy might come out. And scientists will say, listen, there's no evidence to support that. And the reason they say there's no evidence is because it hasn't been studied. And the reason why it hasn't been studied is because there's no money in it or because mm. there's no funding allocated towards it. What do you say to that being like, uh, this seems to be a broken spot within science. And I suppose it was the critique leveled at many uh, COVID remedies being like, well, of course, they're not going to study it because there's no money in mm. it. Is that is there any truth to that critique, like from your perspective? So, again, the, my answer is going to be a little complicated, but um, I would say that the funding situation in science is in need of a lot of improvement, in the sense that science needs a lot more money to study more questions and answer questions faster. Um, but you know. The interesting thing is that if someone has a question of does does this substance, this chemical, whatever, do have an effect on X? If you go to PubMed and, or Google Scholar and you type in that question, you're probably going to find some some research on it. Um, is that research going to be high quality and give you good answers? That's a whole other thing. But there are people who study most questions that you've already thought of. Um, but with the situation of COVID and people saying, oh, well, of course they're not going to study that because there's no money in it. I would say that in a pandemic, any answer, anything that works, there's going to be money in that. So even if a big pharmaceutical company, um, let, let's say, you know, a, a common thing that anti-vaxxers might say is that a big pharmaceutical company wants to suppress uh, the use of a common generic drug to treat COVID because there's no money in it. In reality, if that is the case and there's a generic drug that treats COVID, 
big pharmaceutical companies can have monopolies over markets. You know, they can be the main producers of a generic drug if there's a huge demand for it, and they can still make a lot of money. And I say this because that's what happened in COVID. There was, uh, you know, one of the treatments that we still use, corticosteroids, uh, drugs that help to dampen the immune system, uh, which are used in COVID patients who are who have reached the inflammatory phase of the disease and their immune system is basically going haywire and causing damage in their body. Those drugs are really effective at, uh, at, at helping them, at treating them. They're generic. They're cheap. They've been around for a while and they were recognized early on as a really helpful drug because the data showed that to be true. And pharmaceutical companies definitely made money selling more of it. So, there's always going to be money in answers, um, whether it's for, hmm. whether it's for um, a big pharmaceutical company or maybe one that's up and coming, uh, a new guy that's going to make a lot of money. Mm-hmm. So, I, the the unfortunate thing about capitalism is that everything is so connected to funding and it creates a lot of messiness, mm. but. On the other side, products that work will get used. They will make a lot of money if they work. Um, And in science, you have, again, that community that is cross-checking and critiquing work. So the likelihood of a medication being used on a wide scale if it doesn't work... um, you know, I guess, I guess it can happen, but if it's not endorsed by the science, then, um, that's, that's a big red flag. It sounds like you're saying there is validity in that critique. You're just cautious about how far it goes. And you're probably saying it's not a strong enough critique to wholesale throw out sort of the whole, the whole thing. Yeah. When you when you look at guys like Robert F. Kennedy, mm-hmm. how, do you, how do you see him? I have a friend who works in the health, health industry, and he looks at Robert F. Kennedy and he goes, he's done some pretty important like, work with glyphosate, this, this like, chemical that's in food that turned out to potentially give cancer to those people applying it, a pesticide type thing. And he, he would say... <clears throat> We have to fact check this. I don't know. That's just what a friend says. He would say, Robert F. Kennedy, he's done some pretty important work bringing to light some of the stuff that has been hidden. The science is kind of there for it, but it's been shoved under the rug because it makes money sort of elsewhere. How do you see... So he would see Robert F. Kennedy as being like, well, he's, he's done some okay work in the past with some other things, and now he's bringing forward this vaccine thing. How do you see Robert F. Kennedy after reading his book and, and looking at what he's done, what's your opinion on him? I see him as a, an extremely dishonest person who is doing what he does either for personal fulfillment in a selfish way or for money. Um, I can't say which I don't, I haven't talked to the guy, but 
-hmm. his claims are so blatantly dishonest and untrue that I have to, that's the view I'm forced to have of him as a person. Mm -hmm. Um, And does that extend to everyone like him that is in this expert-ish realm putting like the ground zero of this misinformation? Because as you said, you differentiate between, you know, just people like me who might believe it and the people putting it out there. Do you extend that claim as being dishonest in the sense of he's aware of what he's doing for money or for personal gain or something? Would you extend that to all these other figures that you debunk on your channel? I would say generally, generally, yes. Um, And I've interacted with a few uh, people who spread that kind of disinformation. And sometimes it's hard to understand how they couldn't know what they're doing, like how they couldn't know that they're wrong. Uh, But sometimes maybe they genuinely do believe what they say and they're just delusional. Um, It's hard to really determine what their motives are, but I think there are, there are a good amount that I could definitely say uh, they are, they know what they're doing and they're in it for profit. Mm-hmm. How do you think they see you when they see your YouTube videos debunking their book and with kind of what you've said, you, your take on F Kennedy's book was pretty firm and pretty uh, honest, straight shot there at him and what he's doing. Mm-hmm. How do you think they see you? Uh, a lot of them, well, they've told me that <laughs> they see me as a shill, um, a corrupt, a lot of the same kinds of things they think they might think of me, dishonest, corrupt, um, Mm. in it for money. I've gotten a lot of that. Um, In reality, I don't make much at all of my, I can't say I profit off my YouTube channel. I I haven't, I haven't really tried to monetize it much um, uh, for the, for the majority of the time I've done it. Um, but I think, I think we're kind of, if you zoom out and look at both sides where I'm here talking about data and vaccines and they're over there talking about how anti, how vaccines are bad. I think it's a lot of the same sentiment towards each other and it it makes it hard for conversation Mm -hmm. to happen. Um, and I think I hope I've shown that in some of the live streams that I've done with um, anti-vaxxers. Um, mm-hmm. Those conversations have been difficult to have. Uh, they're mm-hmm. how come? I think because there's a tendency to be entrenched in human bias. Um, a lot of times, conspiracy theorists and anti-vaxxers might become personally identified with their beliefs, with their ideas. And that's something we all have to really be careful of. I have to be careful of that myself. But when that happens and someone is attacking those beliefs, those claims, then they feel personally attacked and it gets heated. And Mm -hmm. then it becomes hard to listen to each other. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm the limitations of conversations that are controversial 
go to a personal level and then that makes communicating next to impossible beyond that point. In these conversations that you've had with these different people of the opposing uh, tribe to you, Mm -hmm. if you were wrong, where would you be wrong? If I were wrong... I mean, so are you asking for like a specific topic or just as you, as you think about, you know, they're probably, you know, as convinced that they're right as you are. And as you, as we reflect, we we try and go, okay, where might, what have you heard that you go, well, if I was wrong, like you don't have to think you're Mm. wrong, but if you were wrong, in what element would it be? It could be something general, like, you know, some bias, something that could lead you down a certain path, or it could be a specific, like, element to this vaccine, pro-vaccine. But let's say you're talking to an anti-vaxxer uh, and they're saying you're completely wrong. If you were to ever to join their side, what, what part of their argument would be the main thing that brought you over or did the most of the work to get you halfway there? So I think uh, I've... I can think of one conversation I've had where I, I asked someone live, um, you know, sh- show me the data. They were basically claiming that there were, uh, there was a bunch of evidence for vaccine deaths and injuries um, mm-hmm. that were being censored and blah, blah, blah. And I said, okay, you know, sh- show me the data. If I see convincing data that there's suddenly way more harm that this vaccine is doing that I wasn't aware of or that mm-hmm. the CDC wasn't aware of or scientists in general aren't aware of, then show me the data. And mm-hmm. he told me to go to Facebook. <laughs> and so, okay. so but, if he could show if, you that data, yeah, if, if he could show me the data, then yeah, you know, I would have to, I would have to, have that moment of humility and say, okay, let me look at this data and see what the deal is. Um, Mm -hmm. Of course, go through the whole scientific process of are these data correct? Is it verifiable? Do we see it repeated through across populations that are all receiving uh, COVID vaccines, Uh, stuff like that. Uh, But Mm -hmm. often, often I try to reach a point in the conversation where it's like, okay, you're making this claim. If this is, if that is true, then you should be able to show me some, something like this, like some sort of data that mm-hmm. can, that can right. say this specific thing. I try to reach that mm-hmm. point in the conversation. And that's usually when it just like devolves into a dumpster fire <laughs> um, in, in my experience. But mm-hmm. that's, I think that data would convince me um, data would convince yeah. me that I was, I was wrong because it has in the past. What's the worst that can happen if people don't buy your idea, you know, back to the top of the show, you're saying, listen to the nerds, trust the nerds. If you're to flip that and you're, you're this old ye old time evangelical pastor that's condemning people to hell if they don't accept it. What's the worst that can happen if you exaggerate and go, Listen, if you don't trust the nerds, here's the worst that's going to happen. Mm. How, what would you say? So when it comes to 
vaccines, uh, I'll just stick to that topic for now in this example. Yep. If you don't trust the nerds, if you don't believe the data, if you don't, if you think that the literature is fake and that hundreds of thousands of people across generations now are lying or bought or mis misled, horribly misled somehow, then the worst case scenario is we have millions more deaths every year. Uh, hmm. Mm-hmm. And a lot more suffering. Um, you know, I, I, have a, I have a young child and we, of course, get, get her vaccinated. And, you know, I couldn't imagine if she had to deal with any of the infectious diseases that are vaccine preventable now. Um, I have people in my family a few generations back who... Uh, we know they died of mumps. Um, these these situations that are kind of forgotten now uh, could easily come back if suddenly everybody just stopped, just lost all trust in science and stopped vaccinating. Mm-hmm. And it would just result in so much real-world suffering that is unnecessary. Um that's the worst case that would happen mm. in terms of vaccines. If people stopped trusting science in general in every field, uh, that would be, I think that would be, you know, civilization ending. We return to child sacrifice. <laughs> sort of. I mean, how much of society... Civilization ends. <laughs> I mean, how much... Trust the nerds or civilization I ends. I mean, how much... Uh, I like it. That's powerful. <laughs> I mean, how much of society is dependent on science? You and I are talking right now because of yeah. uh, scientific advancement. Because of the nerds. Um, our food is sa- as safe as it is because of scientific advancement. Uh, we have hmm. life-saving medications that maybe you or I wouldn't be here today if they didn't exist. Uh, because of scientific advancement. If we just stop trusting all of that, I, I think to stop trusting all of that means abandoning science altogether. And if we did that, then, mm-hmm. I mean, we, we, we'd we be screwed. We'd be absolutely screwed. Trust the nerds or else we're screwed. I think that's a, that's a good place to end it. Dan, <laughs> if people want to follow your content because we didn't go into specifically like the science of the book and debunking it in that if people want to do that you have a channel that uh, debunk the funk on youtube where people can go into the nitty-gritty ideas digest i'm trying to i'm on the level above of like story and how how we navigate this stuff without expertise and getting into the weeds of all that so dan if if people want to follow you and and stay in touch with you where can they do that yeah uh so my youtube channel is debunk the funk with dr wilson i usually upload one at least one video a week um i'm on twitter at debunk the funk i'm on instagram at debunk the funk um oh facebook uh at doc doc wilson debunks yeah i have a facebook page um that's really it i have a tiktok but i haven't really done anything with that Hard to find. Hard. Oh, it's hard. All the kids are on it. You got to get on it, but it's bloody hard. Hard to find time to do that. Um, but mm. I, I'm, I'm looking forward to you debunk whilst dancing. I'm I'm here for it. <laughs> God no. Oh God no. Um, but yeah, I'm. I have. I list my uh, email in 
all of my videos. Um, I'm most responsive on email and through Facebook Messenger. So I do have a few ongoing conversations with people who are hesitant about vaccines. Um, mm -hmm. And you know, I'm totally open to talking to people about that stuff. Um, so if you want to reach out to me, feel free. And as you said, he's a patient guy. Dan is a patient guy. <laughs> thanks for tuning in. Everyone on Instagram, thanks for tuning in live. I have seen some comments kind of firing through. I kind of kept a, a loose eye on it, but it's hard to navigate too many things. So thanks for tuning in, everyone. And I'll catch you in the next episode. If you made it to the end of this episode, then congratulations. I have just one question for you. Are you still unconvinced? No matter where you're sitting, in your car, on the train, in the toilet, in public, nod your head, shake your head, say yes, say no. If you are still unconvinced, you're nodding your head and you're saying, yes, Conrad, I'm still unconvinced, then please open Instagram, not while you're driving, ignore the, pu the cute puppy Instagram reels, head to Ideas Digest, open the DMs, send me a DM and tell me why you are still unconvinced. I am very much looking forward to hearing specifically from you. And if you would like to hear an extended conversation with me and Dr. Debunk the Funk, a bit more open, a bit more honest, am I an anti-vaxxer? Am I a pro-vaxxer? You may find out in that section if you don't, if you don't know already, then head to ideasdigest.org, sign up to support the show, or you can just buy me a coffee, throw a few dollars at me, and I promise I will not actually use that money to buy a coffee. Thanks for tuning in, and I'll catch you in the next episode.